Companies big and small, old and new, are trying to get a handle on the best way to secure their data. But the challenge is that there is so much that goes into cybersecurity, it can be overwhelming for a company to oversee it all internally. These vast challenges are often shouldered by a couple people in the IT department who are left to defend an entire company against a host of bad actors. The history of cybersecurity is one giant game of whack-a-mole. It is either you're trying to take out the threats against your company as they're attacking your organization or entity, or you're trying to tackle one problem at a time as it comes up because you never assessed what those problems could be in the first place. To help against these nefarious attacks, more companies are employing the services of third parties to aid them in their defense. Jenna Waters is a cybersecurity consultant at True Digital Security, where she specializes in assisting clients with security development and threat intelligence. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Jenna explains how her service in the military led her to defending clients from cyber criminals. She also explains cybersecurity essentials every company should deploy, plus she speaks to the future of privacy regulation and the need for security professionals to align their personal goals with the business. IT Visionaries is created by the team at Mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform. Welcome everyone to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have Jenna Waters. She's a cybersecurity consultant at True Digital Security. Jenna, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. All right, right out the gate. What is True Digital and why? What makes you qualified to be a cybersecurity consultant? <laughs> <laughs> wow, you just hit me with the hard questions right at the front. Yeah, right out the gate. Uh, so True Digital is a um, both a uh, security consulting firm as well as a managed services firm. So we kind of do both ends of that spectrum. I work in the consulting field where I do primarily security assessments, PCI assessments. Like we do a lot of security testing, pin testing from networks to cloud to web app testing. Um, and then we have managed services and that's where, you know, clients say we don't want to deal with IT. So you do it for us. It's <laughs> the best way to put it. There you go. Hey, listen, this is one of those things where everyone wants obviously great cybersecurity but they kind of also want, from what we can tell, they kind of also want someone else to point the finger and say, hey, you messed up. Yes. <laughs> Nobody yes. wants to take the brunt of the blade on themselves. Companies don't like build, you know, we've, we've heard it over and over again. Companies, they build up their cybersecurity teams, but it's kind of like marketing. They still want that outside service, that agency to help them out. Yeah. They still definitely want that outside perspective to come in and sort of play the the like devil's advocate sometimes, or yeah, be the punching bag. <laughs> One of the two. So we, we did a little homework on you and pretty interesting. Oh, that's scary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We did a little homework on you. You have a unique background. Uh, you served in the military mm -hmm. and it looks like in a cyber security field. Talk a little bit about that. Like what, what made you join the U.S. military? It looks like you were in the United States Navy under U.S. Fleet Cyber Command. I want to know exactly what that is. And then talk a little <laughs> bit how that transitioned you to, you know, private sector. Uh, so I joined the military right out of high school. It was one of those, I have no idea what I want to do with my life. And well, I don't want to go into outrageous amounts of debt trying to go to college to figure it out. So at the time, my sister was in the army and she convinced me to join the Navy. I apparently did really well on the ASVAB like testing thing. And they're like, you can 
be an engineer or a linguist, pick one. That's the famous test that David Goggins always talks about how he failed. Yeah. He's like, I couldn't pass it at all. <laughs> yes. Which, I mean, was he asleep? It's not, I really, it's not hard. I promise. <laughs> he says he was not very, you know, he dogs on himself on that part, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you were going to, linguist or engineer. I mean, that seemed, so what a linguist would be what? Someone just can learn all the languages and be the translator? So you get assigned a language. Oh, okay. I wish they would, you could go in and be like, I want to learn French. No, that's not how it works. <laughs> You go in and they're like, we're assigning you a language and you have to learn it. You get to spend a whole two years learning a language. So I got to learn Korean, which was a lot of fun. To this day, I still can at least read it really well and understand it. And then that led me um, to get a security clearance and then go work in Hawaii for the U.S. Cyber Fleet, U.S. Naval Cyber Fleet. In that role, of course, pretty much everything I did is classified, but on a broad scale, what I did was a lot of reporting and a lot of work that is really not as interesting as it sounds on paper. <laughs> I promise. But it was really good experience. And it's definitely what helped me, you know, drive the direction I'm going in my life and helped me find my passion, not just for technology, but also for cybersecurity in particular, and now moving into privacy as well. So. Walk our audience through this because, you know, you're in the military. We asked, you know, do you want to be a linguist? Do you want to be in security? You, it sounds like you chose language or you were just given a language. And I was just given one. <laughs> you were just given one. They're like, hey, learn Korean. And by the way, we want you to help us with our monitoring, classified information. Totally get it. Yeah. Then from there, it looks like you transitioned into a career or a major in computer information systems, mm -hmm. minor in cybersecurity at Tulsa. Yep. Went to the University of Tulsa, which was my dream school uh, since I was in fifth grade. I used to love the movie Beauty and the Beast, you know, where he takes her and gives her a huge library. Mm -hmm. So we did this tour in like middle school of this university. And I just remember that library. And I was like, I'm going to that college. That's awesome. <laughs> so that's how I picked my college. Disney. <laughs> hey, listen, you did better than me. I mean, I, I picked my school sight unseen because I wanted to go to school with a good football team. I mean, literally, that's how I chose it. I was like, yeah, <laughs> University of Florida looks fun. <laughs> hey, I hear it's a fun school. I did have a good time. You know, so you chose to also, you're in a career, you've now got naval experience, you're walked back, you know, you go back to school. What brought you into this world of cybersecurity? What was it that you were super fascinated by? Did, was it because of career aspirations or was there something about it that was particularly fascinating? So I've always wanted to work in, an, in a field where I felt like I had a purpose and that purpose was bigger than myself. And I think that's really true for a lot of people of our generation is we want to work towards something of purpose. We want to you know, help build something out or we want to like serve our communities in some way. And I felt that that's where... I could do the most good for the most people. Um, so it's sort of just like this really idealistic concept in my head of how can I serve the most people with the knowledge and experience that I have uh, that I've already gotten pre-college? Because I could have gone and been a, you know, a software developer, though really that's not at all where my talents lie. I could have tried. <laughs> or, you know, just like a network admin or sysadmin or just worked in IT or business development and been fine. But I really wanted to work in a field where my job had a purpose and where I felt I could do the most good. And I felt like this was it. And that's really what drove me not just to pursue a career in cybersecurity, but then to do so in consulting. 
instead of working for one company, I get to work for a bunch of companies, a bunch of state agencies. And, you know, it's sort of like this, if I'm doing my job to help an organization build out or assess their information system security and their security programs, then what I'm also doing is it's going to trickle down to their customers because the more secure they are to protect their customer information, whether that's credit card data, health data, whatever it is, at the end of the day, it's going to trickle down to your average everyday American person. And that's what I wanted to do. So one of the things that we've had the privilege of doing here at IT Visionaries, we get to talk to all these different cybersecurity professionals. The threat levels that people are seeing now is, it's mind boggling hearing some of the stories of what people are actually catching from, you know, dropping worms inside of systems to, you know, network hacks to like straight up email phishing, which they said is still one of the most effective ways of hacking somebody, which is like literally just like we, we had uh, one of our, uh, one of our guests talked about how emails are being doctored so well now, Mm -hmm. it might be a vendor request to change an account number and someone does it. And then the vendor payment goes to a bad actor and boom, they're gone. Yeah. And they talk about all these different things. So one of the things we know is there's security deficiencies at every step of the way, right? Whether it's cloud database, whether it's network security, whether it's devices. One of our, one of our guests actually told us about how a, um, a Wi-Fi enabled fish filter was hacked at a casino to capture high roller data, which was mind boggling to us. But <laughs> I believe it. <laughs> tell our audience a little bit about like your domain experience, because one of the things that's interesting about cybersecurity is that it's so vast, right? Mm-hmm. Where are you particularly strong and what are you focusing on? So I'm particularly strong in areas of payment security. So your credit cards. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta be secure. Yeah. Um, as well as I do a lot of my. I guess my uh, professional uh, research into um, like privacy by security, for lack of a better way to put it. So that's individual privacy or protecting the privacy rights of individuals within an organization and using security controls as a means to do it. So that's where I do a lot of my professional research and I do a lot of my current workload in payment security. I currently do a lot of like payment card industry assessments where I go, well, I used to go on site. Now I go on webcam (laughs) and perform and actually like go through and essentially audit systems. It sounds really boring when I say audit systems, but I'm actually going through and I'm looking at things like firewall security controls and rule sets that are in place, making sure that they're accurately meeting, you know, system like PCI requirements and things like that as well as doing gap assessments for payment card industry for HIPAA. So that's your big health data compliance stuff and making sure people have adequate security controls in place and really trying to, you know, put it like essentially trying to get companies to recognize that if you're secure by default, so if you have security from designed in instead of kind of patchwork on top of each other, no matter what compliance you're going for, no matter what assessment you're going for, whether it's HIPAA, SOC 2, PCI, whatever, whatever acronym you're pursuing, you're already getting there maybe 80 to 90%. You just have to make tweaks if you have that security by default. And that's what I spend a lot of my consulting work doing at this point. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that because that's one of the things that happens we recognize inside of companies is... Mm-hmm. 
if you fail a compliance test, maybe you do like like you suggested a patchwork solution, and then you have another critical failure. Then you do another patchwork solution. Before you know it, your patches on patches on patches. Yes, and it's not designed necessarily for that. It's not patches aren't designed to interlink with other patches of security. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by secure by default? Like what what's your personal vision? What's your company's vision? How do, how do companies build that system architecture secure by default? So secure by default, it's it's obviously easier if you're a startup because yeah. you get to do it from scratch. <laughs> yeah. But if you're already an existing organization, it's looking at first is looking at the really boring stuff, which is and I say really boring stuff because I have to look at it all the time, but your policies, your procedures, your legal, you know, paperwork and going, okay, what, what here can we improve so that it's part of our overall organization vision? And the reason I bring that up is because that is coming from your C-suite. That is coming from the owners or key operators of the business. You have to start there. Every organization no matter how big or small you are, if you don't have leadership input and you don't have their backing, you're not going to succeed because then you're just like pushing against the grind to secure your systems because, you know, your CEO or your COO is trying to get a product out there or get a, you know, piece of software developed to, you know, make a profit to keep the business going. So you really need that leadership buy-in to recognize that it has to be a part of the process. No matter what you're making, no matter what software you're developing, no matter what service you're providing, if you make sure that security is there at every step in the, in the game, what you have done is you have essentially done your due diligence, not just to yourself as an organization, but to your partners, to your vendors, and to your customers and clients. So it really starts there. And then what we do is we move on to, okay, let's do something like a risk assessment for an organization. And that's where you assess your current controls, your gaps, and then your future threats and vulnerabilities. Put it all together and say, this is where you're at. Let's see how we can get you 5% better by next year or 10% better by next year. Sort of things like KPIs come in, you know, those key point indicators that people just love to hear about. And just trying to make sure they understand it's a holistic process. It should happen every single year. And it should just be a part of what you're doing, kind of like finances. Every year you do it, every year you have to pay your taxes as a company, hopefully. <laughs> every, year, <laughs> every year you have to do you know, your payroll taxes and your payroll audits and all that stuff. And so just making it a part of the business structure. That's a lot of times why we see cybersecurity teams and um, security audit teams be not a part of IT, but either on their own as a separate entity, or usually kind of sometimes aligned with like the legal department or the accounting department is because they are doing a very different task, even if that task feels very IT oriented. So is that what you're seeing a lot of, which is like security is more after the fact, like that separation? Because I, because, you know, it sounds like if you were to develop a system of security by default, then security would be more at the forefront of, for example, selecting if I'm a startup, right, selecting my network, selecting my equipment, selecting which cloud services I'm going to use, selecting, you know, how I'm going to store data. Those things all seem to be more secure by default. In an organization where that security team is already separated, then there it sounds like they're being asked to fix the security of whatever's being implemented and selected. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of times it's actually just like the history of cybersecurity is 
one giant game of (laughs) whack-a-mole. Seriously, (laughs) it is either you're trying to take out the threats against your company as they're attacking your organization or entity, or you're trying to tackle one problem at a time as it comes up because you never assessed what those problems could be in the first place. That is like the history of where cybersecurity came from. I mean, like we've all heard of, you know, IPv4, you know, the it's going to go away. We're going to get IPv6 soon. Well, the reason IPv4 sucks so much is because we had to tack on encryption and security and digital certificates and all this stuff to make it secure. IPv6 comes with it natively, but that also makes it quite a bit heavier to run, quite a bit more process intensive in terms of um, networking back and forth and transmissions. So if we did it from the beginning, if we said, okay, let's make our system and network secure now instead of later, what it does is it sets you up for success as you grow and your security program matures with your organization versus having a mature organization. And then next thing you know, you're sitting in front of Congress blaming your security admin like Equifax did. <laughs> I'm just saying, <laughs> if, you're the, if you're the CEO of a company sitting in front of Congress, tell it, well, it was, it was the IT guy's fault. No, it wasn't his fault. You're the CEO. You're the one ultimately responsible for the maturation of your company and the security program that goes along with it. And so it really, like, that's a big, you know, example, but everybody knows about Equifax. Yeah. So for those who are living under a rock or not (laughs) familiar, or maybe you just tuned out uh, the news two years ago. You weren't filing taxes then. It was two years ago, right? Is it exactly two years ago? I think it was two years ago. Yeah, it was two years ago. Equifax, who is supposed to be the leader in monitoring Mm -hmm. your, (laughs) your, um, I guess your financial, your financial credit scores and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It was actually, they got hacked. Yeah. <laughs> they, they got hacked and they, all the information linked. It's an interesting point you make. Do you think legislation is going to change so that the CEO is accountable? Because, you know, after post Enron, they made CEOs more accountable to like the financial records, right? You can no longer say, oh, my CFO did it. Mm-hmm. Like, ah, I don't know. <laughs> they, they committed all this fraud. <laughs> it was all their fault. <laughs> yeah. You think that's going to change? You think they're going to put more responsibilities on the business owners and operators for what security, what's going on? I hope so. I I know that I probably, I do. I hope so because there has to be some consequences for actions when that level of negligence affects not just a few thousand people or a few hundred people, but millions of people. There's millions. Yeah. I think Equifax has a record on every human Mm -hmm. in the United States. I think it's got a record on every adult with any type of financial transaction in the United States. Or any foreign national who owns property in the United States. Yeah. So yeah, if you're investing in a United States company, yeah, <laughs> that's property in the U.S. So I mean, it's a lot of people. And then you look at Solar Winds, uh, which was the most recent big attack that we saw. That basically, it was last I checked, was like 500 million records and like. 30 million companies. It was like millions of customers were affected by the solar winds hack. So when you see this level of damage, whether it's tangible damage, reputational damage, or intangible damage, somewhere like finances, when you see that and it's being trickled to everyone in an economy or everyone in a country or multiple countries, there has to be consequences for that because it was preventable or it could have been mitigated, or it should have been caught. 
So the fact that it wasn't says that at some point, someone didn't do their due diligence. Someone did not take the time to make sure somewhere in their processes that something wasn't tested or it wasn't patched or it wasn't, there was no oversight or monitoring or logging. So I guarantee you in their sphere of work, their process, they missed something and it affected millions of people and there needs to be consequences for that. So do I think legislation will pass? I hope so. Now the question is, will that legislation have teeth or not? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's real easy to just pass like a, well, we condemn this behavior and then nothing comes of it. Yeah, it's like, it's like, it's like, uh, I don't know, not to be too political, but it's like EPA fines. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a million dollar fine for dumping this chemical in this water. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you're in, you're in one of the most, I mean, the field you're in is one of the most desired data points, right? Payments data is something that, let's call them bad actors, they want, right? And additionally, it's a common thing among people that are cybersecurity professionals. They always talk, they commonly talk about how, and it makes total sense, the threats are always changing. So the threats, the ways, the techniques, the programs, whether it's at a programmatic level, all the way down to like, is it a, you know, literally a con phishing level? Yeah. The people that want this information are continuously changing their methodologies. And then you here are in in a role where you have to help build organizations up so that their process and procedures can help catch that. What's your philosophy on catching things that you don't know that exist yet? Because that's kind of what is faced, the cyber, ultimately that's what cybersecurity professionals are faced with. So that's where a very fun buzzword and people in cybersecurity love this buzzword. They use it all the time, but it's called defense in depth. <laughs> it means essentially having a layered approach to your cybersecurity controls. You don't have one security control for one threat. You have a layer of them. So essentially it's like Shrek. You should have an onion of security controls. So if they get past one, can they get past the next one? And then the next one and the next one. And what you have to do is you have to build out that layer. A lot of times I kind of, my husband makes fun of me for this, but when I'm explaining it to like, some of my friends, I have a, like a knitting circle of friends. I am in my thirties, by the way. <laughs> so, Killing the knitting game. There we go. I do. And I'm like, well, you have to do one loop at a time, but when you've done all your loops, you have a whole sweater. Yeah. And if you've done it well, it'll keep you warm. Every security control is a loop in that sweater. So if you snag one, you can fix that. So that's what you want to do. Or I guess if you want to be super like, you know, masculine about it, like each link is like a piece in chain mail. You may break one, but it's not going to break the whole armor. So you, what you really want to do is you want to layer your defense and layer security controls and your monitoring and making, sh- and if you can't do it as a business, if that's like, you're like, ah, that's too much for me, then seeking out people who can, seeking out organizations who have built the trust in the industry and have essentially proven their worth in the industry to either help you do it or to do it for you. And what that can do is that can help transfer some of the risk as well, which is, it has its good sides and its bad sides, but 
there's multiple ways to get it done. Not every organization needs to have like a 24-7 security operations team doing nothing but watching their laptops all day, you know? So I'm going to use another analogy, but then I'm going to make, I'm going to ask you to provide an example of how this works in play. Okay. We had someone on once that said, you know, ultimately you want your cybersecurity to be like the cartel. And I was like, what do you mean? I love it. It's like, you want information to travel from A to B, B to C, C, C to D in a way that no one can actually backlink everything together. Like literally B only knows C, mm-hmm. A only knows B. And so at every link, they only have enough information so that if any one of those and that's how the cartel does it. If any person gets pinched, they actually can't tell you where it comes from. It's like, they just tell you where they got it, right? <laughs> I picked it up from point A. Where are you taking it? Point B. Who told you? Mm. <laughs> it was talking about how these systems of record are so broken apart. And they, of course, they don't keep digital records. They don't keep, it's like the ultimate security in that when he was explaining how when law enforcement officials break people or find and pinch people in the car, like they, that's why they can't really find the source. It's because people don't actually know anything. Mm-hmm. And he was saying like, he was describing how cybersecurity, like encryption, like you can't use the same encryption keys at every step of the way because all someone has to do is penetrate one, then they have it all. Yeah. And so he was kind of, t- or like networks, right? Like you have network security policies, right? If one gets violated, that you can't have them all. Mm-hmm. And so he was kind of explaining it that way. And I was like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I'm curious in your world, like how, how does that, how does that come to fruition? Like, give me an idea of like, so let's use a data point, a credit card number. Okay. From the moment I type it in the website, how does that say secured? What does a company need to do to protect it? I guess that's the better question. What's a company need to do to protect it so that no one else can intercept it? Okay. So if you're starting from, I'm a customer and I'm, you know, buying something from uh, eBay. I don't know. Sure. Yeah. eBay, whatever. Um, and I type in my credit card. What you do is from the moment they start entering those digits, you should be monitoring your website with a you know web access firewall. Yep. What you should be doing is you should be, have tested that website and tested the code, reviewed the code of that website, making sure it's not susceptible to cross-site forgery or cross-site scripting attacks. So making sure that the input is valid and the input cannot be taken at the point of interaction. So that's when you are typing in your credit card. Now, let's say you hit submit. Upon hitting submit, what should be done and what I would like to see my clients do when they're taking credit cards is partnering with a tokenization service. So what this does is they have a good example is an iframe. So you're on eBay and it looks like eBay and you have your little product window and then the little window where you type your credit card. That window where you type your credit card or you know the pop-up on PayPal when you type in a credit card, that can be done through an iframe. What that does is that iframe doesn't belong to eBay. It doesn't belong to PayPal. It belongs to Chase or it belongs to, you know, it belongs to some payment application Mm -hmm. that actually ends up taking that credit card, assigning it a token, and they run, they do everything for you between the bank and the merchant. And they go, okay, credit card's approved. What they do is they take that approval, they take a token. That's all you get in your organization as a token, not the credit card number, not the PIN number, not the CVV number. All you get as an organization when you get back the, okay, their payments approved, that authorization is the authorization, transaction number, and a token. And that token should be then stored in a secure database that is completely separate and completely segregated 
from your web application. All right. So now, but if I get the token, what if I get the tokens? Can I go marry them up to like Bank of America and be like, oh, I got token, you know, one, two, three. What payment is that associated to? Or does the bank know never to reveal that information? So that's where you're transferring the risk a bit. So that's when it's up to the tokenization company to say, let's make sure that tokens are one-time tokens. They're only used once per credit card each time. And that means it's very difficult to go from one new token every single time to the credit card. And that credit card, when it's stored, should be stored encrypted. And that encryption should be done either a one-way function encryption, which is a hash value, or it should be done in an encryption vault where essentially good luck getting into it because it's <laughs> you know AES 256-bit encryption, which is yet to be broken. Those supercomputers and neural networks in like a 10 years might prove, may prove us wrong. And making sure you're doing things like encryption management, um, you know, key management, making sure you have the only people who can access to encrypt or decrypt those credit card numbers are very few in between, require maybe dual control. So two people have to be there for you to even decrypt one credit card. And you have to have a third intermediary approval. You can also put the encryption keys in a completely separate service provider that does encryption key um, escrow, kind of like your, you know, when you've got your house goes in escrow and you get uh, when you sell. Yeah. So put it in escrow. They hold onto the keys for you. You can't even encrypt or decrypt it in your organization. You have to go to them to get it encrypted or decrypted. So like you can set up a whole chain to make it extremely difficult for a hacker to get to it. Does it make it impossible? No, <laughs> you can never eliminate risk. The point is, is to mitigate that risk to a level that is acceptable and a level that is that essentially makes it look way more difficult than it's worth to the other side. So, you know, if you're tokenizing, that's already going to make someone who wants a bunch of credit card information go. Ugh, this is a lot more work than I wanted for 500 credit cards. I can just go buy those in the black market. That was pretty fascinating with the way you just described it. I mean, it makes it sound like, um, so I, I'm going to, I mean, my statute of limitations is passed, so it's fine. <laughs> I used to, Teleflora was one of my accounts back in the day. And I remember we wanted to get, we were an e-commerce tool and we wanted a lot of the applications, as you know, are installed via script. Yeah. So especially if you're on the store and you're going to optimize like suggestions, recommendations and a card abandonment, usually that script has to be on and people will have different tag managers that they'll use. And I remember we had to go through this huge audit just to get our, our product on there. And then of course they wanted to see our insurance policies and everything like that, like bigger, more mature companies are going to do that. Mm -hmm. But then there's also like the Shopify marketplace, which I could probably drop something in there tomorrow. And <laughs> <laughs> it's constantly. Be so give us an idea of like, you know, do you typically work with merchants or do you typically work with technology firms? Both. Shopify. So like, I'm not saying Shopify is compromised in any way. I'm not saying that. But like there's marketplace tools. And of course, in marketplace tools, their promise to you is, hey, we vet every app yeah. so that it is secure. But we already know things slip. And we also know that even though you have marketplace applications, uh, you could still, you know, like Epic Games does this for iPhone. Like you could still bypass it and try to install applications natively. Yeah. Of course, you can do it for sure on Android, right? And so do you typically work with marketplaces or do you typically work with single side 
I guess, technology companies that own their stack vertically, they don't integrate with other applications. Talk about wh- what type of customer typically do you work with? I work with a lot of merchants. So those are, when I say merchant, that's going to be the person who actively gets the payment from the bank. Okay. So that could be your small mom and pop pizza shop. I wish I worked for those people, but I do occasionally <laughs> have smaller businesses. Um, or that can be, you know, a church that can be a big business, like a gas station, retail organization, like a convenience store. Like I have, the, I have a few clients that are like big national convenience store chains. Mm-hmm. So they see a lot of credit card traffic coming in and out. That could be a target that could be, or just, you know, your strict retail business. So you could also be people like utilities or I do work with some clients that provide, all they provide is the payment application and they do only have that vertical stack and that's what they own and that's what they do. Mm-hmm. I do have some organizations that do that um, I work with them on stuff. And then I also have some that work directly with credit card brands, your MasterCard. So I work with pretty much, if they deal with a credit card and they're in some industry, I've, I've seen them. So, I mean, you're, you're at the forefront of it because you, you mentioned multiple consumer companies uh, or, you know, consumer merchants. And that's one of the things that I've, you know, I'm curious to hear your philosophy on because on one side, the merchant themselves, they want to keep innovating, keep building experiences, keep building, you know, integrating things that customers really like. And of course they can't develop them all. So that they want to install third-party applications that, that do this. Mm-hmm. On the other side, they're constantly being threatened uh, because people want to steal. Because if I, you know, if I were to get my script, if I were to get my script on like, you know, like we just used eBay for a moment ago, but if I yeah. were to get my script on eBay or if I, were, I mean, I could literally rip millions of credit cards a day. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's, it'd be, it'd be un- unbelievable. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I could charge them all like, you know, $2. I don't know. But point being is that do these kinds of companies, are they resistant to like the policies and procedures you're doing? Uh, because like you, you, I could see them like having an appetite to innovate and then them feeling like, uh, oh, I can't innovate because I have to check for security. Or is the threat of security enough that like, they have to take every step in precaution before they integrate any type of third-party application software? So I'm going to give you my ideal world answer. Yeah. And that's the last one is you should be vetting your service providers. Yeah. <laughs> you should absolutely be vetting them. Oh, you know it's not happening. <laughs> I know it's not happening. I really want it to happen. <laughs> I stand on my soapbox and pedestal all day ranting about how much I wish people would vet their service providers more because they're a big part of this, you know, this essentially digital credit card economy. And they are the middlemen that nobody talks about. And they do bear a lot of the risk and responsibility. And what a lot of people don't realize, so a good example is, I know everyone enjoys attacking Amazon, so I'm going to use them as my, <laughs> my example. A lot of people like to host their applications on AWS. Sure. AWS says it's compliant with PCI, it's compliant with HIPAA, you just spin up the specific, you know, S3 or E2 bucket. And EC2 is compute, S3 is storage, whatever. They have all the different yeah, services. Of and of course, you could buy oh. security services <laughs> on top of their services because their existing services may be compromised in some way. But yes. Yep. Yep. That you can just have it all. It's like, you know, it's a gift basket of technology right there. But when you actually go in and you dig through their organizational compliance, if you actually dig through what they say they're responsible for and will use the customer responsible for, it is very granular to what you have, what license you've paid for or are paying for, and 
what you share in responsibility with them. And they do not take as much responsibility off of you as their marketing department wants you to believe. <laughs> I remember this. I think the biggest responsibility they have is like the physical. Like if yes. someone were to actually walk into my data center and download it, that's on me. If someone hacks my side of the cloud, that's on me. But everything else is you, like your yep. website, that's all you. That's all you, dog. Exactly. And Microsoft's the same way. So, you know, they're all, it's all the same. They're going to protect themselves. So it's up to you as the, you know, business owner, the person who wants to, you know, facilitate your organization's success to go, is Amazon right for us? And if they are, because we don't want to own our own data center because we are smaller, we, we want to operate in the cloud because it's way more flexible, way more elastic. Okay, what are the risks that come there? What are we responsible for if we go with Amazon? And how do we make sure we cover those responsibilities? in regards to protecting stuff like payment card information, or if you're like a health vendor protecting any kind of HIPAA data coming in and out. So ideally, you would absolutely, as much pain as it would cause you in the beginning, you know, it's like training for a marathon. You're not going to just suddenly go, I'm going to go do a marathon today. No, you're going to spend months training for that marathon. And that's what these vendor reviews should be. They should be, I want to be successful, not just in six months. I want to be successful in five years. Let's take the two or three months to go through this, you know, vendor or to ask them for their compliance documentation and then have somebody read through it with us or making sure that we've basically covered all of our bases in regards to a PCI, a HIPAA or a PII compliance so that later on we aren't paying out the butt because we violated some compliance that we didn't even know about or that we knew about it was in the back of our heads, but we didn't want to, you know, we didn't want to worry about it right now. It's really about looking at the longevity of your organization, which is hard. It's really hard as a startup. As a startup, you're worried about making it nine months, but you do want to get to that five-year mark. And if you do, you want to have gotten there in a way that models the value of your organization. And if you believe your organization is valuable, then you should do everything on the front end that you can feasibly do to protect it and continue doing so throughout its growth. Well, Jenna, I'm not going to lie. That is, while that is a great cybersecurity answer, I'm telling you right now, you're the bane of every sales rep's existence because you are correct. That is what you should do. But sales reps want to install products and services fast and probably someone on the cut. And they're so good at it. There's probably someone on your side that's or the, your uh, client side that's like, I really just want this tool that gives good recommendations. You're like, oh, I need you to do a security review. They're like, oh, Jenna, come on. I'd, what are we talking about here? <laughs> it, doesn't have, like, it doesn't have to be crazy. Like I'm thinking like starting from scratch architecture, but if it's something as simple as we want to implement Clam AV open source antivirus instead of paying like a million dollars for McAfee that may not or may not work, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just go, okay, is Clam AV going to be enough? And do we have enough skill with it to make it work and to make it work for our organization? It doesn't have to always be, you know, this huge, like complex project. Sometimes it can just be, do we want to do open source? Or maybe is it better to go with a trusted product? Like it could be that simple. Strong advice. (laughs) Jenna, it is time for the lightning round. The lightning round 
is brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Jenna, this is where we ask you questions outside of the realm of work so people, our audience can get to know you a little bit better. You ready? Yes, I am. <laughs> All right. So here we go. You mentioned earlier that you were forced to learn Korean. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever visited Korea? I have not. I'm really wanting to visit. So... We were pre-planning a trip pre-COVID and then that ruined all my plans. So we will be doing a, a trip to Korea, at least a two week trip. I'm really excited about it eventually. Yeah. You got to put your, you got to put your language skills to practice. Did you ever actually have to speak or translate Korean while you were in the Navy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. And I mean, even today, like I have friends who are of Korean descent that, you know, we can we can chat a bit like they're they're still very much Americans and English is their main language. But, you know, we have some slang that we can use with each other, which is fun. Yeah. And I absolutely watch a lot of Korean dramas. There you go. <laughs> you mentioned earlier also that you are an it sounds like an avid knitter. Is that correct? I am. What is the most elaborate thing you have knitted? Uh, so it's called double sided knitting. It's where the pattern is on both sides. I actually managed to do it's like a shawl. That is where the knitting is on both sides. It's because usually you'll have it on one side and the other side looks, you know, like a cat just took itself into the yard. Mine's a shawl that did both sides and I did it for my grandmother. Wait, so you literally, the both sides have a different, different thing. If I look, if I looked on one, what was on the front side? On the front side was a, um, like a winter fair, fair pattern. Okay. Which is like that Icelandic sweaters that everybody loves. All right. And I turn it over and what I see. And on the other side, what I ended up doing was, uh, like a fall leaf kind of color. So it was like dark maroons with like leaves and stuff going across. So she could have it for winter or fall. Are your friends that are non-knitters impressed by your skills? Oh, maybe. <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> Let's go with maybe. Some are, some are just like, you're old. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I'm married to a crafter. I'll call her a craft. I don't know what to call her because she doesn't knit, but she does. I've seen her knit. I've seen her build random things. I mean- we're in our forties, but anyways, she loves it. And I, I think she's young. I mean, she's young at heart to me. <laughs> hey, we're all young. It's fine. Jenna, it was awesome having you today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing your story from Navy to cybersecurity and sales reps. If you're not getting your deals through, it's because Jenna's stopping you. <laughs> <laughs> IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.